The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Everlane. Would you buy a t-shirt for 50 bucks if you knew it only cost $7 to make? Well, we wouldn't. And I suspect you wouldn't either because you're smart. Everlane makes great clothes. They're the kind of clothes that you can wear every day without thinking about it and still look good. We've been an Everlane family for many years. My daughter's response to what do you want for your birthday from anybody, any relative, was always Everlane gift card. Yeah, you can't go wrong with it. In fact, this year, I gave my brother-in-law two Everlane shirts. They're affordable enough that I could give him two. And he loves them. He wears them all the time. They're the first things that he wears when they come out of the laundry. Specifically, I sent him two of the Japanese Slim Fit Oxford shirt. And they're great. I, in fact, have two of them myself, and so I got two of them for him. I own a lot of Everlane clothes as well. A personal favorite, the modern Harrington jacket. I wear it all the time. I got it in navy. It looks very nice on me. I've seen you in it, and you do look good in it. You're very kind. And right now, if you want to check out a little collection of uh, some of my favorite picks from Everlane, you can at everlane.com slash westwing. If you go there, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's free. That's shipping. It's free shipping. <laughs> it's everlane.com slash Westwing. Check out the collection, then find whatever is going to be your favorite item. Order it and get free shipping at everlane.com slash Westwing. The Westwing Weekly is brought to you by Lightstream. Do you know the average interest rate on credit card debt is over 18% APR? What? It's stupid. And you don't need to do that. You can get a rate as low as 6.14% APR with AutoPay if you used Lightstream. And that rate is fixed, which means it will never go up. So you can refinance your high-interest credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. You can get a loan from 5K to 100 large, as we say in the money business. <laughs> and there are no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. So if you've got good credit, you deserve great service and a low-interest fixed-rate loan, and you'll get that from Lightstream. They make lending uncomplicated. Plus, West Wing Weekly listeners get an additional interest rate discount. But the only way to get it is by going to lightstream.com slash westwing. That's lightstream.com slash westwing. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash westwing. Here's a disclaimer. This is subject to credit approval. The rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash westwing for more information. You're listening to The West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're talking about Season 6, Episode 11. It's called Opposition Research. It was written by Eli Addy. It was directed by Chris Messiano. And it first aired on January 12th, 2005. We're two weeks away from the month that shall not be mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> the month of Voldemort. Right, Exactly. In this episode, Josh and Matt Santos travel to New Hampshire to set up shop and do some campaigning for the early days of the Santos candidacy. But they discover they have some fundamental disagreements about the strategy in New Hampshire and the story to be told and maybe even the ultimate goal of the campaign. And coming up later, we're going to be joined by special guest Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who has been honing his own narrative and introducing himself as a candidate for the presidency. He's got an exploratory committee and he's got some similarities to Matt Santos, and he just spent some time in New Hampshire doing retail politics of his own. He's a candidate you could see Josh Lyman getting behind. I think so, yes. And in fact, Bradley Whitford tweeted that he thought that he was the real thing. There you go. 
This episode starts with a white title screen, as opposed to our familiar black title screen with white text. Mm, maybe it's a comment on New Hampshire. I think it is. It's unlike most episodes, and I think it's also a comment on the fact that this isn't like most West Wing episodes. Yes, that's one of the things I enjoyed about it. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't enjoy most West Wing episodes, but it's refreshing. It's refreshing to get out of town, as it were. Yeah, I think this is our first step into a really new world. One thing that makes this so different is not just the location, but several of our series regulars, our main characters, aren't in this episode. That's right. There's no Abby, there's no Leo, there's no CJ, there's no Charlie, and there's no Kate. And I missed none of them. <laughs> I mean, I think the story is pretty captivating and uh, and interesting. And it's nice. It feels a little bit like a flashback that we never saw, a flashback that has never happened. Ha. Huh. This feels a little bit like the first Star Wars movie, you know, A New Hope, and then A Force Awakens, when they have new characters and, you know, it's a different moment in time in the universe, but a lot of the mechanics of the story are things that, that are familiar, things that we, we're kind of used to, and they're kind of shifting some of the pieces around to tell some of the same stories. That's right. And looking at this episode, I thought of what Paul Redford had to say to us last week about how under Aaron... It was important that every character be served story-wise every yeah. episode. Right. So that uh, you really would not, I guess, have gotten an episode like this in the Sorkin years. That's true. That's interesting. I just am now thinking about um, the long goodbye. It was kind of like this in that it was sort of a bottle episode for Alice and Janney, a CJ-centric episode. But it doesn't really count as a bottle episode because it's entirely on location, you know, some, somewhere far away. But that's also an episode that Aaron... Sorkin didn't write, even though it was during his tenure. That was that was John Robin Bates. Indeed. I found it refreshing. Maybe I've just been in Los Angeles for too long, but I just enjoyed even looking at snow and uh, cold environs and yeah. uh, people's breath. I was like, wow, oh, look how exotic. That white screen really does set things up, especially when you have the driving wind as the first thing you hear. It's a cold frontal. Ah, nice. <laughs> Very nice. When you say driving wind, I thought you meant Brad in the car. <laughs> In this episode, we're in New Hampshire, of course, but it wasn't actually filmed in New Hampshire. It was filmed in Canada, outside Toronto. Do you remember going out there for any of these scenes? I don't think I went to Canada. That makes sense. Mine are all interiors, and I believe they were shot on a soundstage. Right. I didn't get the field trip. Yeah. I thought it looked good. Not that I have such a discerning eye on behalf of New Hampshire, but I thought it looked, uh, it convinced me. I've spent a fair amount of time in New Hampshire, being from Massachusetts and having gone to high school there. And uh, yeah, I bought it as New Hampshire too. This episode starts with Josh and Matt Santos just driving around in the car. I I don't actually know how to, as realized in the synopsis and just now, I'm calling Jimmy Smith's character Matt Santos. Like, I I don't know exactly how to describe him. I I don't feel like I'm on a first name basis with him. (laughs) But he wants you to be. Exactly. He wants me to be on a first name basis. He wants me to call him Matt. Maybe we should. But, you know, Josh is insistent that he should be called the congressman. Congressman, we're having this conversation. I don't want to call you Matt. And, of course, you know, as we've talked about many times, we call the president the president or President Bartlett. Well, I don't. You don't. And a lot of writers. President congressman. (laughs) That sounds right. Okay, there we go. The number of tweets that I get, uh, apropos of nothing, that just put the word president (laughs) in front of what I tweeted, uh, I'm sure I soundly deserve, but it is a lot. Yes. And uh, occasionally it still makes me laugh, even though I should have come to expect it by now. Yeah, we've created... (laughs) A president monster. Exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> yep. A monster that's that's kind of cute and amusing still, but monstrous and presidential nonetheless. Right. You know, I actually spoke to a, a friend of mine who is working for a presidential candidate right now. This thing about, you know, calling the candidate by the title or by their first name or what the deal is. She sent me a text about this. She's a big West Wing fan, too. She said, one of the things that's changed between the Santos campaign and the current cycle is how candidates are referred to. 20 years ago, it was Congressman Santos, Senator Vinnick. Governor Clinton. Everyone used the title to be taken more seriously and remind voters that they already had an important job and could be trusted to take on an even bigger one. But today it's different. Candidates want to be more approachable on a first name basis with voters. So it may be Senator Sanders or Congressman Castro in Congress, but it's definitely Bernie and Julian on the campaign trail. It's more relatable and easier to fit on a campaign button. There you go. There's such a contrast between the way I grew up as a kid and the way my kids are growing up. I would never have referred to a friend's parents by their first names. Yes. In fact, there's this classic moment that my younger sister had when she somehow just referred to our next door neighbor by his first name. And he just brutally reminded her that he was Mr. Washington. And she, I mean, it traumatized her to the point where she can summon it up now in her 40s as like a seminal moment of just withering. But now I can't imagine any of my children's friends calling me Mr. Molina. It would just (laughs) sound so weird. And I would certainly say, please call me Josh. It's just such a, I guess, cultural shift. It's funny. I felt really weird when a few of my friends who I grew up with switched They switched with my parents. They went from calling them Mr. and Mrs. Hereway to calling them Sumesh and Kanta. And I was like, you have not, like, what do you think has changed? Yeah, how how have you earned that? With no intervening occurrence, nobody invited it or asked them. Your parents didn't say, hey. Oh, (laughs) I thought you meant like a period where they just referred to them by their middle names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little, uh, please at least uh, do it in stages. Yeah. (laughs) No. Uh, What it really meant was they were not invited to start calling them by their first names? You know, I think there might have been a moment when my dad said, you know, call me Sumesh or something. And I kind of laughed it off, you know, after we had graduated college or something like that. Maybe my dad had said that. I'd never expected any of my friends to take him up on that. But a few of my friends have. And and it actually bothers me. Uh, Would you ever tell anyone? No, I guess I'm just doing a really deep subtweet here. So if you're listening, maybe you know who you are. (laughs) Let us know if you're mortified. I don't call your parents by their first name. I would never dream of calling them by their first names. I'm quite sure they would want you to call them Bob and Fran. Mm-mm. I mean, those aren't their names, but for some reason, <laughs> they're good with Bob and Fran. It's just these characters they take on. It's strange. I mean, your dad's given first name is actually Mr. Molina. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which was confusing as a kid, but... That is confusing. There was this great... <laughs> thing from CPAC today where Donald Trump was talking and he's like, oh, people used to call me up and be like, Donnie, Don. And now they call me up and they, and they say, Mr. President. And I say, relax, call me Donald. <laughs> <laughs> it's so casual. Okay. Like, That's hilarious. Don't, you don't have to go that formal, but you do have to go more formal than you were right. before. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of names, CPAC doesn't work for me. CPAC is, I feel like, what I take when I get bronchitis. <laughs> so, as I was saying, I don't know what to call Matthew Santos, Congressman Santos, Congressman Matthew Santos, President Congressman Matthew Santos. And this is a big subject of discussion in this episode. Call me Matt. I don't want to call you Matt. That was pretty good Brad Woodford you just did. Thanks. 
So what, what are we going to do? Can we just make a house rule here? What, how do we refer to him? Santos? Santos. Okay, fine. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> you know, we have a savvy listenership, but just in case, I thought maybe it would be worth just defining the term retail politics for a second. Okay. So New Hampshire's retail politics, really, this is the process of introducing yourself to people at a small scale with real human interaction is actually a crucial test for presidential candidates. Because most of our interactions with these people are through mass media. I mean, even the stuff, you know, if you're not in New Hampshire or not in the very places where they're going to be, even then you're watching it through TV news. But it's still a setting where they're actually meeting people, shaking hands, taking questions and, and actually having to be a human being. And I think it's like a way to sort of get a sense of does this person actually have a soul? Are they real? Is, is there something three dimensional to them? And I think the New Hampshire primary feels important, especially to people in New Hampshire, but I think really in general in the process as just a proxy for everyone else to get to see them in that setting. Yeah, well, what's, what's interesting, I think, is that even in this day and age of social media and 24-hour news cycle and all that, what happens on the ground in New Hampshire in what should be a very low-stakes setting, because there's only a few delegates that are going to be chosen by this process, but its prominence as one of the early bellwethers makes that sort of retail politics explode and magnified because everything's being covered. And also every person, I guess, whose hand uh, is met by the candidates and who is impressed by something then also has their presence out in the world. It's like the shampoo commercial. They told two friends, and they told two friends, and they told two friends. And so I like, that's one of the things I love about this episode, is seeing that even in this day and age, and granted this is 14 years ago, that there's an importance, even being emphasized by somebody as savvy as Josh Lyman, about just meeting people and looking in their eyes and giving them a sense of who you are. And I liked the little button on this cold open that just has... President Congressman Santos <laughs> just walking up to somebody. Where are they at? They're at a garbage dump or recycling. Recycling center. And just uh, introduce them. You know, it sort of almost trails off. Morning. Hi, I'm Matt Santos. I'm running for president. I love that little moment. It's pretty cute that Santos and Josh are just driving around together at the beginning, you know, with no entourage. Yes. And I, I liked the period piece of it all. What with the paper map. Oh, needing a map. Yeah. Right. But it's nice that you, you couldn't really write that scene anywhere. There would have to be some explanation for why neither of them has a phone. Or it would be the really cliched reason that just always stretches credulity for me, which is uh, I'm not getting any bars here. Ah, right. And therefore the GPS doesn't work. You know, like whenever suddenly you're being chased by a monster, president monster, <laughs> you're, you're, and you're trying to make a call in the horror movie, it's like, oh, I'm out of bars wherever you just happen to be. Right. Or you'd have to be like my wife, the lovely Melissa, who genuinely enjoys a paper map. She likes something uh, she can hold and look at. Whenever we travel, she's always getting the real deal. I'm always saying, really? Mm. We need to buy a map of London? But, <laughs> but she likes it, and I love that about her. And they're beautiful to look at. That's true. I still keep a copy of the Thomas Guide in my car. Oh, do you really? Wow, that is old school. Yeah. I really like all the dialogue between Josh and Santos in the car in this scene. Santos says he just he wishes they could campaign and somehow just take his name off of it, which is a great, sweet kind of egoless drive from a presidential candidate. But uh, Josh's response is great. You know, I almost wish that we could have a campaign slogan without my name. Yeah. For president. It's catchy. 
<laughs> yeah, I love that too. It's just a funny little couplet between them, but it also sort of augurs what's to come, which is that they have this sort of fundamental butting of heads about basic approach to the campaign. Yeah. Eli was on fire, I think, in this episode. Some really great writing. It's an excellent script. Yeah. There are some other weird things, though, stylistic things in this episode. You know, there was the white cold frontal. And then there's also this moment as they finish up the drive and they get to the, they finally arrive at the campaign headquarters. There's this little music cue. The song Someday, Someway is playing in the car by Marshall Crenshaw. Hmm. It's just there for a second, but it's the kind of thing that we almost never encounter in the West Wing, which is just like, just a piece of music. In the end, it functions as a thing that was in the car. You know, they stop the car and the song turns off. But for a few seconds, there's just a song playing, like a pop song. And it's not motivated by, you know, they're at the White House and James Taylor is playing, or they're at Rock the Vote and and Amy Mann is playing, you know, or they're at a bar and it's playing over the loudspeaker or something and they're talking over it. It's just this little moment of some music. Are you now going to tell me you asked, you reached out to Eli and asked him why he chose that? I didn't. No, no. (laughs) I'm disappointed in you. (laughs) It's about what I expected from me, but I'm a little disappointed in you. I was just going to say, Eli is a real music guy, you know, appreciator of fine music. And there must be, uh, that must have been, I would guess, his choice. Although, I mean, that could be a directorial choice, but. Let's give it a shot. I'm going to text Eli right now and let's see. Pick up the bat phone. I mean, really, it could just be any song. Which is part of the reason why it feels a little unusual for the West Wing. It's the kind of thing that is extremely common in TV, Mm -hmm. and especially in network TV and TV of this era. But just it struck me as a little bit surprising. Then when they arrive, Josh really lays out the mission. This trip is about introducing yourself, honing a narrative. That's it. I'm here to hone. That is Josh's mission. This is the heart of what it is that they're butting heads over. The whole time, Santos wants to just talk about real policy. He wants to get to the heart of what he thinks needs to change in the country. And Josh keeps telling him, they have to get to know you first. Yeah, there's a certain, uh, I will pre-admit to being a party pooper a little bit, but there's a one slight criticism humming under the most of this episode for me is that they didn't have this discussion before they came to New Hampshire. Because it's a continuing discussion. I mean, obviously, uh, it's, you know not in the spirit of the thing, to make a suggestion that would have obviated the need for the entire episode. (laughs) But, you know, when they were finally yelling at each other or raising their voices and really getting into it, you know, I just kept thinking, this is, uh," or I guess it's on Josh. He should have had this conversation before New Hampshire. They shouldn't have hit the ground stumbling. They should have been prepared for what their approach was going to be to this very important primary. Yeah. And first primary. To their credit, Santos does say that. He says, you know, maybe that's what we should have talked about in Houston. It makes you think, how short of a conversation was it? Did it, right. was it really as long as what we saw in the episode? He just comes in and says, I want you to run for president. He's like, see you later. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'll meet you in New Hampshire. Yeah. But you know, one thing I don't take issue with. What's that? When Santos makes a toast to everyone, they're drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which is very New England. That said, am I wrong, or is this another instance, it's been a long time since we discussed it, of very bad fake coffee drinking on television? <laughs> I mean, I went back to look at it again, and one, 
I don't think he's even pouring coffee. You certainly, they cut before you would really actually see any liquid come out. The cups look like there's no weight to them. Yeah. When they clink them together, it sounds like the clinking of empty styrofoam cups. <laughs> I had to look a couple of times to see if there's any steam. I think there may be CGI steam on some of it. I don't know. I just, it, it made me go back to that uh, website that I think we uh, referenced once before. Yes. In this video montage of bad fake television coffee drinking. Yeah, and you'd like to nominate this. Yes, indeed. And announce its candidacy for uh, fake coffee drinking. <laughs> empty cup awards. Hashtag empty cup awards. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, just search empty cup awards and you'll see some great examples. It's good stuff. By the way, it was Eli's choice to put that song in. He has responded already. The bat phone works again. He said it was his choice. I love Marshall Crenshaw. That's about what I was anticipating. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know whether, whether it would turn out to have been his choice, but I'm not surprised. And I, but I thought the reason behind it might be that he really likes him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes uh, I think that's a classic uh, Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. There's a great insight into Josh's character, I think, in this uh, episode. When you see him sort of push really hard on one side against Santos and the Santos aides, Rana and Ned, you know, about the idea of like injecting this education speech into their time in New Hampshire. He talks about it with such passion and such conviction, even really like a kind of like cockiness and arrogance about it and just absolute assuredness. But then when we have him in a different setting, he talks to Toby and he presents the idea to him almost sheepishly. What would you think about a big education speech? In New Hampshire on his first trip? Yeah, it's just an idea we're kicking around. Stop kicking. But he takes ownership of it a little bit. Yeah. It really ends up belying that sense of confidence earlier. And then Toby gives the answer that he himself had given. I really love that. There's something really endearing about that for me. It shows he feels like he needs to push so hard just to move an inch, even if it's something that he isn't necessarily 100% convinced of, just because it's so important to like move somewhere in the direction that he thinks they need to head. Yeah, I get that. That being said, I was a little put off by Josh's original approach to the existing Santos team. Oh, yeah. He comes in, you know, like rolling thunder. Just He says all sorts of things that don't strike me as the kind of guy who's trying to ingratiate himself and maybe get a little bit of a sense of the lay of the land. He comes in with a sort of my way or the highway kind of approach that isn't necessarily the most effective management style. What part of campaign manager do you not understand? Do you want me to draw you a flowchart? Yeah, that's a conversational dead end with somebody who works for you. That That's shut up yeah. on your boss. Yeah, he does not treat Rana and Ned great. Speaking of Rana and Ned, when we first met Rana in the episode Liftoff, she's played by... Karis Campbell. Karis Campbell. And her name was pronounced differently, right? It was pronounced Rona. Rona, give Mr. Lyman a copy of the talking points. Yes, it's odd because you gotta, one would think they had come up with their name initially to pay it off down the line in the kind of comic exchange that we get between Donna and Rana. But perhaps it was just a happy accident and they had not yet figured out the comic potential there. Hi, hi, Rana. Actually, it's Donna. I know it's Rana. No, really, it's Donna. I'm, I'm quite certain it's Rana. It's Donna, Donna, it's Rana. I, I like the idea that, like, we should change the pronunciation just so we can have this little Abbott and Costello skit. Right. And I guess it would have been a much bigger deal to suddenly have Janelle's character <laughs> pronounced Dona. <laughs> uh, they probably figured fewer people will notice if we change Rona's name to Rana. <laughs> I mean, I think they made the right call there. 
By the way, I have a pair of brown shoes that are on the floor next to me. Uh-huh. And so far, nine times I thought it was one of my cats. <laughs> I keep trying to get my shoes to jump up onto my lap. I was really hoping you were going to tell me that, coincidentally, the shoes are also named Rana and Donna. <laughs> well, they are now. All right. How about Toby's reaction to Josh? You know, Josh asks him straight up, you think this is kind of goofy? And he says, uh, yeah. <laughs> Nobody's really taking this campaign seriously, it seems like outside of Josh and maybe the Santos aides who came with him from his congressional office. And I think even they, they were a little bit bewildered by the whole thing. Josh thinks that he's not the only one who's taking it seriously. He sees these reporters on the campaign trail. He's got, they've got the New York Times there and the Washington Post there. And this guy's nothing but potential. Why else would Brock and Morgan be covering our first trip? You know, and he's frustrated with Santos's own feelings on the campaign. But Josh doesn't actually see that that's not the reason why the reporters are there. He's so bought in to the narrative that he's created about this guy. And like, like, it's really wonderful. You know, you need to, I think you need to believe in a candidate that much in order to sacrifice the things that Josh has sacrificed. But part of that also means he's lost a little bit of perspective. And it turns out, as Greg Brock tells him, they don't see Santos as a serious contender. They think the story is Josh himself. Yeah, that Josh is doing something politically interesting and maybe even working on behalf of Hoynes, like doing this very roundabout maneuver to help Hoynes against Russell by introducing this third candidate that's going to somehow divide them or, or, you know, just position Hoynes better later on. Yes, and we learned that Will as well suspects that may be what Josh is up to. Yeah. Will is kind of amazing in this episode, I think. He, he has some really, really sneaky power moves. Yeah, he plays some uh, long ball. Yeah. We get to see a shrewder Will. Yes. When Josh goes to the Russell campaign headquarters in New Hampshire, he goes into Will's office and Will sort of casually says, you don't mind if I, uh, one of my deputies sits in? Deputy Dona. It's Deputy Dona. And the first time I watched the scene, I was so, you know, the, the dynamic of now Dona and Josh being in the same room <laughs> for the first time since she quit. You know, they, they actually haven't appeared on screen together since she told him that she was leaving the position. And so they're seeing each other now for the first time. And the whole time, you know, they're both so distracted. The first time I watched it, I was just watching the two of them sort of take each other in. And it was only on, you know, subsequent viewings that I kind of really got what Will was doing there. Like, I thought he was just kind of, as Josh later accuses him, you know, trying to guilt him or just trying to do some kind of... A stunt. Yeah, exactly. Throw him off his game, do some kind of weird intimidation or something. Yeah, that's the way it reads at first. Yeah. It becomes slowly clear that he's got more of a, a game plan in mind and that Will suspects that Josh is going to wind up working for this campaign and he right. wants to leave him in a situation where he can actually be hired. That's true. Yeah. I thought that the really smart thing about having Donna there is, you know, Will says he's there because he wants to propose a clean campaign. He says, the truth is we're all friends. We're all good Democrats. None of us wants a bloodied nominee. And I know you don't want to attack the president's record, also known as your record, also known as the vice president's record. Great speech. It's so good. He, he's kind of both at once extending an olive branch and a threat at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think having Donna there is this concrete way to yoke their shared history together. Yeah, it's a reminder for sure. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's like Machiavellian, which I know is like a pejorative 
I think it's great. It's really smart. Yeah, it's nice to see. It's nice for me, I'm sure, at the time, and it's nice for me on rewatch or original watch to see Will having been shunted off to the nether regions of the West Wing universe to see him playing kind of uh, an important piece now in the foreground of the plot. I mean, he's obviously back in the wrong guy still, but it's nice to see him in the game again. Yeah, and, and it also doesn't come out of uh, left field. There, It isn't like, oh, we needed something for Will to do, so here's a place we can put him in the storyline. Right. It's actually... No more clippy, as you would say. Right, exactly. He's no longer the Microsoft paperclip just popping in. But when he was, you know, and he for so long, he was just in this weird purgatory of being the whatever, whatever his position was, liaison to the vice president's office. I never really understood because when we had Hoynes, we never had a corresponding staffer. Very who was good point. It was strange. But in any case, we're past that. Now he has this very real role that's paid off. Him going over to the Russell side of things has given him this great foothold in this part of the story. You said a couple of things that I thought were interesting. First, Josh having bought his own narrative and getting a little bit lost in it, losing perspective. Yeah. I think what's one of the interesting things about his journey in this episode, which obviously focuses on Josh Lyman and Matt Santos, he's kind of got a foot in each world. He's the one trying to be pragmatic and practical with the candidate mm -hmm. suggesting that you shake some hands and talk about your school background a little bit and get people just to learn who you are and build up some positive name recognition. But you're also right. On the other hand, he's also kind of lost in this sort of fantasy narrative he has for the entire campaign. It's interesting to see him sort of kind of caught between the two. And then he, he even discovers, and I think it's, and you allude, alluded to it earlier, there's a moment where he learns that the congressman himself maybe doesn't even think it's winnable. I'm not trying to make this a test case. Come on. We're lucky if we have two months with this. I don't want to waste it shaking hands. Two months? I gave up everything for this. You're not even in it to win? Maybe we have a different definition of winning, Josh. Maybe that's what we should have talked about in Houston. Yeah. And it's like, wow, there's some fundamental stuff, which also made me, I didn't realize that it was going to turn out that the opposition research that Joey had given him was on Santos. But I was thinking earlier, I was like, I was trying to play Rishi and look into the title. And I kept thinking over the course of the episode, they haven't done enough opposition research into each other. These guys don't know each other yet. And no wonder they're not clicking yet. They haven't really had, the, they have communications issues. They haven't delved deep enough into the way the other one works and figured out a compromise or a way forward. Yeah. What is Santos's ultimate goal? He does not seem to think that there's any chance he's going to win. And this is sort of what I was referring to earlier. This is a very Bartlett-esque position. Um, sorry, Bartlett president-esque position. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but in Manchester Part 2, the president says, I was never supposed to win. I got in it polling in the single digits. Hoynes had it locked up. I got in it to give some speeches and keep him honest. And I think Santos really believes in this education policy. This is his one issue. This is the reason why he's doing any of this. And suddenly you understand why he's ignoring all of Josh's advice, because some of this stuff is like politics 101. You're like, obviously right. you should know about this. And he's not a newcomer to politics. He's been a mayor. He's been a congressman. I mean, he's just... He's run six campaigns, I think he says. Yeah, he should know this. But then when you think, okay, he thinks he's got a brief flicker 
of a moment to say some things and affect some change at a national scale, knowing now that he's no longer going to be a congressman. Mm -hmm. That's right. Then this is his chance, and this is what he's going to try and uh, push up the hell. Right. And of course, being that guy makes him a candidate we can all root for. Yeah. And it works. The strategy does work. By the end of the episode, despite everyone, despite Josh and Toby saying, you got to swallow this, you know, you can't do this right now. Hoynes challenges everybody for a debate on education. And Josh, who had been doing a good job as campaign manager, had said to reporters, where's everybody else's education policies? We're the only one putting out there. And by the end, all the other candidates were introducing their education plans. So that really felt like hey, we've been here before a little bit. Because that other thing that Rana tells Josh when he gives her that horrible flowchart, he says he wants to rein in the policy process. She says, In the house when we were dragging our feet on a policy he liked, he would just announce it without telling us. And that's what he does here. And he, he wins. I mean, what, what's really sweet about the, the episode is by the end, they both have kind of gotten their way. That's right. Santos did get to move the discussion forward on education. Yeah. And he's walking to the Hawks residence yeah. to meet and greet and talk. Yeah. I think that the thing that is, I mean, they both have this sort of revelation. It takes Josh getting to the end of his arc, you know, this realization that actually the policy stuff that Santos wants to talk about and the personal narrative that he wants him to deliver aren't these two separate ideas that have to be somehow negotiated between, that actually there's a very easy line to be drawn between those two dots. And once he makes that clear, I think they both feel better about it. And then he goes into Hawk's house and, and he gives that that last speech that we hear. Right. Yeah, well said. Well, that's what I mean. It's kind of a brilliant episode. I, I, and I said early in our discussion, I had this little sort of niggling issue with it, which is like, why didn't they work all this stuff out beforehand? And the answer is because then you wouldn't get a fantastic episode. <laughs> yeah, like this. exactly. To see them work it out on the trail. Yeah. And it's wonderful to see, you know, like just that little moment at the end, you know, Josh apologizes for the crack about Santos's brother. Santos has this brother who's going to be problematic, maybe somewhere down the line. He says, your brother hasn't worked in five years and Santos is actually supporting him financially. Why that exactly is opposition research is, you know, it's not like it's so bad. That's right. hardly like a real... It's not a huge skeleton in the closet. Yeah, exactly. But Josh says, if there's something worse, if you ever tried to put him on a government payroll, I need to know that. And Santos tries to be above it, and Josh is really trying to get him to recognize that he can't pretend that he's exceptional in that way. I like that moment at the end, after they have their sort of detente, and Santos like pats him on the back, and he says, uh, When you get the rest of that research, uh, we'll go over it together. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of great moments. I love the phone call with President Bartlett. For some reason, that's exactly when you said there were a lot of great moments. I thought, like the president calling his son-in-law a pinhead. Sorry about what happened with Doug. If you ever have daughters, Josh, don't let them run off and marry pinheads. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. By the way, starting with, and in a rare moment of genuine appreciation, great moment from Brad. I loved, and it's just a subtle little thing, where there's a staffer who basically says, A call for you, a Mr. POTUS on the line. And I was like, dude, you don't even watch The West Wing? I mean, literally, <laughs> the pilot you haven't seen? But uh, Josh rushes to the phone, and you can see in Josh's face that even seven years into an administration, it's still high stakes for the president. You know, while, while he's waiting, there's just something subtle in his clenched jaw, and you can tell he's waiting for the president right. on the phone. And right. I thought it was just a great, subtle little piece of acting from Brad. Yeah, that's great. Doug Weston is the worst, though. He's pretty bad. And that's fine. The thing that I really object to is Lizzie Weston seems wonderful, smart, 
we know she's she's smart. sharp yeah yeah why why is she with this pinhead that's a good question and I don't know that I have sufficiently been convinced of a reason, you know, something in her character or in the backstory to explain exactly why this brilliant lady is with this uh, doofus. 3.2 billion men in the world. She picks him. I hear he had a great pitching arm. When he was 19, sure. She dumped a Rhodes Scholar for this guy. Zoe left Charlie for the frog. Ellie and the guitar player with the purple van. My children choose morons, every one. They say daughters look for their fathers. Annabeth Gish is good. Yeah. She's terrific on the role. And I like Josh's pitch to her for there just to be a photo op, a single frame would help maybe break this into a real race. So they just give a little bit of credibility rather than just letting the New Hampshire primary just be a rubber stamp for the traditional candidates. Right. The established candidates, I should say. And the way this storyline plays out in the end is great, too. You know, she is sharp, and therefore she's not ever charmed by Josh. She does not buy his bullshit. And, uh, she calls him a jerk. Yeah, and she's still not friends with him by the end, but she does hand him over a $2,000 check, the maximum allowed. You're donut? You're giving Matt Santos $2,000? Yeah. Sorry, that's the federal limit. Liz, this goes on a publicly disclosed donor list. This is a Bartlett family contribution to Santos for president. Funny thing about the FEC, they really like it when you report this stuff. So even though Doug wouldn't endorse Santos and was actually pretty crappy to him. Yeah, she'll give him sort of a backdoor endorsement. Yes, and a really significant one. I like the way that it also sort of reflected what her dad did. We get two generations of Bartlett's kind of subtly saying, like, you know, put this on me. You know, the president with an actual negative, he's saying he should hit me on how little I've done on education, and here are some numbers to back it up, which yeah. is fantastic. And then uh, Lizzie saying, you know, obviously you can let this get out that I've uh, donated to your campaign. Yeah. It's sort of similar approaches. By the way, some more thoughts from Eli. This is interesting. He said that... Is this a breaking news story? Yeah, I got a text from him. This just in. I was just asking him about, about this episode, and he said that at this point, he was just starting out as a full-fledged writer, and he was so grateful. He says, I was so grateful to be doing this work that I didn't know I could have strong opinions about tone and things like that. This episode came across as slightly too heavy to me, as I recall. Plus, some gags and prop humor from the script were cut by the director because they were hard to execute. Started asserting myself a bit more after this one. Huh. Oh, that's pretty interesting. It is. I wonder, you know, when he talks about tone, we've discussed before that the director and maybe producers and writers will discuss tone. They'll have tone meetings and I think scene by scene go through a script and discuss. So I wonder if he had not asserted himself to the point of wanting to be in that room or hadn't been invited to be part of it. Yeah. I like the tone in this episode. I don't think that it's too heavy. I think there's some great jokes in it. Well, definitely there's some very funny parts. Yeah. And I think uh, the contrast between those moments and the heavier stuff is fantastic. Maybe he's a little too close to it. He also says that he hasn't watched it since it aired. I can't believe that. It's such a good episode. I'm surprised he hasn't revisited it. And that, yeah. yeah, you never know if it's something that kind of stuck in your craw 15 years ago. And if you rewatched it, he might not uh, feel that way today. There was a moment we saw in flashback between the president and Leo, you know, when they're at their most caustic in their relationship, you know, mm -hmm. at the end of season five. And the president says, oh, it should have been you. And and it looks almost for a second like Leo believes him. Anyway, there's this moment between Josh and Matt Santos. Santos says, whose campaign is this, Josh? I don't know. Who flew down to Houston and talked you into it? And I thought, damn. Yeah. 
that is, uh, well, if anything, it seems ripe for a flashback later on in their story. <laughs> That's true. That's funny. Yeah, things get hot in that scene. Yeah. Joey Lucas shows up, and I, I love her presence as a you know familiar ally for Josh and someone who can also just give it to him straight. You know, like Joey Lucas with the polling and her understanding of how to read a poll and stuff like that. She's kind of an oracle in a way for the show. You know, hmm. like she's kind of like a like a way for them to cut through things to truth. So she does the opposition research. She tells him, you know, he really should have done this long before. They should have been on this process a while ago. And she also gives him this news that Santos is within the margin of error. I love this exchange. I don't suppose you've seen any with Santos in the mix? Two private polls. He's within the margin of error. Of who? Of having any support at all. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's rough news. Yeah. I was looking at some polling from New Hampshire right now, and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are by far way out ahead in the polls. And they are the most established candidates, you know? You've got the runner-up for the nomination and former vice president. These are two heavyweights, and everyone is sort of trailing them by quite a bit. And uh, I thought of our upcoming guest, Pete Buttigieg, who is in a similar position to Santos. He's within the margin of error. I mean, I think in some of these categories, he's at 1%. And he's not the only one. I mean, there's so many people in the primary right now for the Democratic nomination, and so many of them are newcomers. You know, it's a very real position to be in. And Yeah. There's a moment early in this episode that I love when Josh Lyman rather defensively says with regard to name recognition, I guess it's about, is it about Hoynes or about Russell? But somebody throws the name recognition in his face. He says, yeah, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. And I think there is a certain truth to that, that early on, and of course, New Hampshire is about as early as you can get. It's the first primary. And so it's after only the Iowa caucus. Name recognition is huge, but I think it can prove to be an inch deep as the candidates start to assert themselves and people start to stake claim to actual positions that can fall away pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, Eli said that he had some prop jokes that got cut out, but the best prop jokes are the cutout. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> it is funny. And, I, the, you know, the worst thing about it is the pose, the Russell pose, like this guy right here oh, pose. I know. The two Ooh. thumbs up. The pose is ridiculous. It is ridiculous, but uh, comically so. I ran into Gary Cole, by the way, yesterday. No kidding. Why I didn't take a picture with him, I don't know. But uh, we bonded and he said he would be happy to do the show. It was at the Kennedy Elementary School in Compton as part of the Read Across America program, which brings actors and people in to read to kids. It was it was so much fun. I got to read to a table full of sixth and seventh graders. My kids being old and not so cute anymore, I forgot how cute and ridiculous <laughs> and interactive. What did you read? I read uh, The Giving Tree. Yeah. Uh, Shel Silverstein? Shel Silverstein. Awesome. I read uh, Corduroy. I don't know Corduroy. By Don Freeman. Oh, it's very cute. And I read uh, Curious George uh, Gets a Bicycle or Finds a Bicycle or something like that. One of the Curious George books by H.A. Ray. That's really nice. And just every picture, every page, all 10 kids would say something. <laughs> it was just, it was the cutest thing in the world. They were so jazzed by having these stories read to them and uh, they would notice something on the page or want to ask a question. It was very, very cute. Yeah, that sounds great. And good on you for doing that. Thank you. 
Speaking of schools, there is a moment in this episode that struck me as a little bit funny. It's just a little bit when they're driving back to the motel and Santos is talking about his education plan, you know, in these sort of broad strokes. He's talking about it, you know, to his staff. It sounds like he's almost drafting the speech as he's talking. And I'm, I was wondering if mm-hmm. somebody was, you know, writing notes for what the speech will eventually become. But at one point he says, unless we want to completely balkanize the education system. But the thing that seems strange to me is that really, I think his education policy is in response to the fact that we have balkanized the education system. It's just a matter of fact that everybody knows that not only is a high school diploma different from state to state and city to city, but even neighborhood to neighborhood. Sure. They're completely different. So that was a funny little... Interesting point. Yeah, I know it's just a little bit of dialogue that's part of the texture of the episode, not so much like a major plot point, but I thought he would really... I mean... You bumped on that. Yeah, just the unless part. Seemed wrong. And speaking of both schools and bumping on, somebody on Twitter reached out and I think she said, and I should have her name, but I don't, that she has introduced the term bumping on something to her sixth graders. I think sixth graders. And they use it all the time. And that just the, uh, the idea of that delights me. That's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Mayor Pete Buttigieg. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace helps you take any idea you have and turn it into a website. Maybe you blog. Maybe you vlog. Maybe you clog dance and you (laughs) want to share it with people. They'll help you do that. Maybe you don't yet know what your idea is, but you know you want to have one. Well, you can start your Squarespace site now in preparation. That's right. They're like a creative partner. So when you're ready to launch clogvlogs.com, Your vlog about clogging. (laughs) Right. Check out the beautiful templates that you get uh, designed by world-class designers. There's powerful e-commerce functionality when you feel you're ready to sell videos of your clogging. Or maybe you've designed your own specialty branded clogs that tie in with your vlogs. You know what? That's not a terrible idea. Let's talk off mic later. (laughs) All right. Clog vlog clogs coming soon. In the meantime... Head to squarespace.com slash West Wing for a free trial. Get your own idea. Don't use clog vlogs because that's ours. That's ours. Then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code West Wing to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain like clogvlogs.com, but not that one. Like we said, that's taken. That's right. Go to squarespace.com slash West Wing. It's a free trial. Joshy. Yes. Don't be scared. Why? What? Now I am. Don't be scared because... There's a way for you to get exceptional home security, thanks to one of our sponsors, Simply Safe. Right on. Tell me about Simply Safe, Rishi. It's an award-winning security system that offers 24/7 protection for your entire house. That's good because I don't like there to be safe zones and scary zones in my house. I want the whole thing protected. Well, The Verge says this is the best home security, and it won Reader's Choice from PC Magazine. I've also been told it's the two-time winner of CNET's Editor's Choice. That's true. So it's a, I guess, by pretty much unanimous acclaim, it's the company to go to for security. And you can get a 60-day risk-free trial. So really, I mean, you shouldn't even be scared about trying it. That's two free months of not being scared. I've never gone two months without fear. <laughs> well, order now and have your home protected within a week at simplysafe.com slash westwing. That's simplysafe.com slash Westwing. Make sure to use that URL so they know that we sent you. The Westwing Weekly is sponsored by Article. 
Article is the premier online-only furniture company. They've got fabulous stuff. Their furniture is beautifully designed. It's modern. It's got a certain Scandinavian simplicity, I would say. Much like ourselves. <laughs> yes, I'd like to think so. I've got two fabulous bedside tables. My love of their Bamba Poofs, I think, is well known among our <laughs> podcast listeners. I'm moving soon, next month, in fact, and my wife and I are eyeing their lovely sectional sofas. There's a fireplace around which I would like to build a beautiful area, and I think we're going to use an article sectional sofa. I sometimes I look on their website just to dream of the furniture that I'll have someday when I move. And what has caught your eye? Well, you know, the thing that I really am dreaming of is a king-size bed. It's something I've never had. I've never lived someplace that can fit a king-size bed. But there, there's this one king-size bed on the article website, the Kulla Spindle Walnut King Bed. It just looks so good, and I dream about the day that someday that bed will be mine. Their furniture is fantastic, folks. Check it out on the website if you haven't looked at it. Here are some other great things about this company. No matter how many items you buy, every order shipped at a flat rate of 49 bucks. How about that? And you know what? You can just forget about that 49 bucks because Article is offering our listeners $50 off of their first purchase of $100 or more. Boom! To claim it, just visit article.com slash Westwing and the discount will automatically be applied at checkout. That's article.com slash West Wing. Take a look. And get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Can't beat that. And now, back to the show. And now, let's go to Rishi's conversation with Pete Buttigieg. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Regardless of what happens in 2020, there is an incredibly bright future for Mayor Buttigieg. So before we get started, here's just a little bit about Mayor Pete He's in this process that Santos is in, going around, introducing himself, and uh, I think he's doing a great job. But here are some things about him, just to set the stage. Pete Buttigieg is in his eighth and final year as mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He was first elected mayor in 2011 at the age of 29 years old. He was reelected in 2015 with a whopping 80% of the vote. He served as a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy Reserve. He took an unpaid seven-month leave during his mayoral term for a deployment to Afghanistan. And for his counterterrorism work, he earned the Joint Service Commendation Medal. The Washington Post has called him the most interesting mayor you've never heard of. And President Obama named him as one of four Democrats who represented the future of the Democratic Party. Not too bad. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Glad it worked out. Are you a West Wing fan by any chance? Yeah, yeah. I can't say I've seen every one, but uh, I've certainly seen some of them quite a few times. I remember that being a kind of antidote to the way the world was turning about the time I was headed to college. We're talking about this episode, Opposition Research, where candidates are in New Hampshire getting ready for uh, the primary season there. Had you seen this one before? I actually hadn't. So uh, thanks for the invitation to do that. Definitely uh, rings familiar with some of the things we face on the trail. Yeah, that was what I was wondering about. What in this episode felt most true to life to you? Well, definitely the humbling dimensions of retail politics, right? I mean, nobody cares uh, how much you've been on TV. Nobody cares kind of what office you hold. In these early states, you have early voters. They take their role very seriously. They get that they have a kind of privileged position in terms of being able to have a lot of influence on presidential politics. And so they ask you very serious questions, but they also expect you to come to the coffee shop, come to the living room. And to me, that's one of the very democratic things that we still have in our presidential process. This idea that you're supposed to have conversations with people in a very intimate setting in order for them to really be able to kick the tires on your campaign versus just 
go off of all of it based on on what they can get over the air and, and see from a distance. What about on the other side? Was there stuff in the TV show that made you feel like this is purely fiction? It definitely hit on a lot of themes that are very real. The tension that happens between what you want to do and what you feel like the process is, is asking of you. The only thing I wasn't sure was realistic is that the candidate Santos would, uh, as a former mayor, have that much uh, of a struggle with the retail environment. Because I think when you're a mayor... yes. I think I caught a remark. He's a congressman, right? Exactly. And uh, I think when you're a mayor of a, a city of any size, you you are actually very attuned to retail politics because you have to be. Like, you know, I go to the if I go to Target or the grocery around here, people are going to come up to me. They're going to ask what I was doing about a a pothole or a trash pickup or whatever. And so you don't overlook the importance of that kind of ground level nitty gritty stuff, no matter how much you care about policy and big picture ideas. If I wanted coffee clutches and recycled cans, I wouldn't run for Congress again. We need to sell you first, then we'll get to the big issues. Meaning not in New Hampshire. Meaning once people get to know who you are. Yeah, that part really seemed to be a stretch to me too. You'd think the grip and grin, he knows the value of that. Yeah, and look, I was never a grip and grin kind of guy. In fact, I have a whole chapter on this in my book about how I had to kind of learn gradually the importance of some of the informal roles that you have. As mayor, I was a policy guy. I wanted to work on policy. But my evolution was partly learning to respect the symbolic dimensions of the job that I had, learning to take them as seriously, you know, even a, a title that I didn't always feel comfortable wearing or never wanting to look too pompous or caught up in that. But learning to make sure I took the trappings of the office as seriously as the people who came into the office, because doing that was part of how I could honor them. Do you feel any kind of tension the way that Matt Santos does in this episode where he wants to move past introducing himself and get right into his education policy? Do you feel like there are policies that you want to get deep into, but you're slowed down because of a kind of schedule that candidates are supposed to follow at this point? I don't know about that. If, if anything, I think things may have lurched in the other direction. So, uh, you know, Democrats were, were generally policy people. We like to go right into the policies. I actually think it's cost us quite a bit over the last uh, probably 10, 20, or even 30 years, that we have kind of laid out our policies and expected people to be able to kind of derive what our values must be by looking at the policies, hmm. instead of talking first about ideas and about values. So if, if, if you do it wrong, it sounds all vague and, and meaningless. But I actually think it's very important to talk about universal values, things nobody can be against. I talk about freedom, democracy, and security. But then go a layer deeper and talk about what they mean to me in a way that might be controversial. Why I think freedom entails reproductive freedom and freedom uh, from having to worry about your health care and freedom to marry the person you love and things that have actually been very vigorously debated. Democracy, you know, an issue that I think is front and center, or at least deserves to be front and center in our politics right now, because we're becoming, in my opinion, less and less democratic as a country. And security, where everybody wants security, but we're having a little bit of trouble as a country realizing that security in the 21st century includes things like cybersecurity, and it includes things like climate security. So I'm, I'm trying to push on those, but a lot of the questions I get are, what do you think about the latest policy that this senator put forward in their plan and their resolution? You're forward or against it? Yes or no? Go. And to me, like, first of all, maybe I don't know. And secondly, maybe it's more important, especially for my side of the aisle, having really allowed conservatives to win a lot of battles over ideas and values so that the policies just kind of followed from that, right. even democratic policies. Yeah. Maybe we need to spend a little more time contesting the idea space before we get into the specific prescriptions that ought to come out of that. That's interesting. I wanted to ask you about your timeline. I'm just going to go over some highlights here. You were 
elected mayor in 2011. But before that, you'd worked on John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004. Before even that, in what I think is a really wonderful West Wing moment, you wrote an essay on Bernie Sanders that won you an award at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, someone who you might end up facing in a primary season. And I love that. So in 2011, you were elected mayor. In 2014, you went to Afghanistan. You served there as a Navy intelligence officer. In 2015, you came out, and then you were reelected as mayor. And at this point, you were already on a lot of people's radar. Frank Bruni wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying, the first gay president speculating about you. And then you, you ran for DNC chair in 2017. I think for a lot of people, the last couple of months have been their introduction to you. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the steps that led up to your exploratory committee. In the world of the West Wing, Santos is uh, sort of thrust into this primary season very suddenly because Josh Lyman shows up and says, I think you should run for president. Were there people in your life who were advising you, saying, I think this is the time, now you know you should be running for president? Was it an aspiration that you'd had in the back of your head and didn't know when? Well, I really, I certainly would not have planned for most of my life or even most of my career in politics on doing this as a mayor in my 30s in 2020. I think anybody who runs for office, it crosses their mind. At some point, you ask yourself, you know, what's the highest and, and broadest level that I could ever serve in? But uh, it certainly didn't seem to me when I was putting together a run for mayor in 2011 uh, that we could be talking about a run for president in 2020. But a lot of things didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me that Donald Trump would become the president <laughs> of the United States. Fair enough. It didn't occur to me that the center of gravity in America politics would come to be, in many ways, the industrial Midwest, and in particular, my own party's failure to connect with people in the industrial Midwest. And it didn't occur to me that uh, a moment of generational change might come unexpectedly soon. You know, three out of the last four presidents we've had, Presidents Trump, Bush, and Clinton, are all exactly the same age. They were born within a few weeks of each other in the summer of 1946. <laughs> we don't think of it that way. They entered our consciousness when they were at different ages. But it shows you how there's been a certain, for the most part, very strong generational pattern that we're now probably at a watershed moment where that's about to change. Or are we? That's one of the things that will be tested in the years ahead. So in terms of my own process, I believe that thinking about any office really comes down to two steps. The first step is you build your theory of what the office calls for, what the, the community of people, whether it's the whole country or a city or a congressional district or a state, what it needs and what that office most needs in that moment. And it can change dramatically from year to year. But you think about what it needs right now. And the second thing you think about is what you bring to the table. And so following that process, for example, is part of how I came to run for mayor. There was a city that I was from that was down on itself, struggling to grow, especially when it came to business, and losing its young people. And I thought as a business person who was young, who believed in the city, I could be the exact, with a background in economic development, I could be the exact right person for this moment. Following that same process has also led me to not run for office a number of times. More than once, I was recruited to run for Congress by people who thought, uh, that I could be the right kind of person to turn my district blue because I was pretty popular with Republicans and independents as well as Democrats. But I never looked at the district and looked at the Congress and looked at myself and said, this is an obvious fit. So I never did it. Why is that? What was not the obvious fit there? Well, one of the things that I had learned through experience as a mayor was the importance of executive leadership and uh, that I had an aptitude for it, that actually part of how I could earn my paycheck was by doing the things that an executive does, which is passing and implementing policies, 
the implementing part being, you know, a little different than what a legislator does, but also capably running an organization, an administration, in our case, a city that uh, workforce that's, uh, you know, a thousand plus people and a $300 million a year operation that's dealing with everything from wastewater to uh, streetscapes to economic development and policing. And then third, calling people to their highest values, bringing people together. And I learned how to do that kind of work in a way that turned out to really suit me to the mayoral job, in a way that I might not have been suited, uh, at least at that stage in my life and at that moment in the U.S. history and the path of my district, to being a, a member of the U.S. House. I think it's really important to think about the fact that every office, we're talking about running for a very particular job with particular demands and calling for particular strengths. And again, the strengths that are most needed can also really change, right? In the, in the years after Watergate, the presidency really needed a somebody who was just an absolute picture of humility and honesty. Mm-hmm. And it was part of why Americans needed Jimmy Carter. Right. Then once Jimmy Carter was elected, in some ways what people needed was a little more of a sense of royalty, uh, which they got with President Reagan. And so the demands of the office in the symbolic level, as well as concretely, you know, what experiences and skills it calls for, those can develop. And of course, we as human beings develop too. And it's only when you see a match between those two things that it really makes sense to take those steps forward. Do you think that there are just personality types that are better suited to legislative positions? I don't know. It's certainly the case that it's different. So for example, if you think of some of our most masterful and successful legislative leaders, just brilliant figures when it came to managing a chamber of the Congress. Uh, Lyndon Johnson is a great example. LBJ's mastery of the Senate was unbelievable. Tip O'Neill in the House. Uh, Nancy Pelosi today, who I think is a very effective speaker. Picture a great speech that they gave. Picture the, the lines you most associate with them. It's hard to do. Right. Because giving great stirring oratory, even though that's very much something that a member of the Senate or the House might do to great effect, turns out is not one of the central skills of being a leader in the Senate or the House. It has much more to do with things that happen behind the scenes, uh, the gifts of a tactician, somebody who understands how to assemble a coalition, how to uh, beg, borrow or steal the votes you need in order to get something done. Arguably a radically different skill set than what's required of, uh, of a president. Can I ask you again about some process stuff about your committee? This is an exploratory committee. What does that actually look like in terms of who is on the committee and how did you choose those people? So one thing that's important to understand from the process perspective is when you have a committee, a campaign committee or a, an exploratory committee, it's not a set list of people sitting around a table. Uh, it, it's mostly a, a legal entity. So creating the exploratory committee was what made it possible for us to begin testing the waters. It's also something that was particularly necessary for me because we had to raise the money to do all of the things, even those very initial steps. So if you're personally wealthy, there's no limit on on what you can do, for example, to run polls in a place like Iowa or New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just cut a check and you can just do it. But the moment you raise somebody else's money to do it, you're doing something that's very closely regulated as a campaign activity. And so as somebody who isn't personally wealthy and also you know, hasn't been in the Senate for decades to have a, a very large uh, federal pack, we really need to create an entity, a legal vehicle that would make it possible to do some of these things, travel to early states, meet with voters, understand what we need to do financially, put together a strategy. And so a lot of this stuff is kind of under the hood process stuff, but it's very important for a, a, an emerging staff 
that wants to make sure that the moment you actually turn the light to green, have your big launch event, have an audience and a podium and declare that you're going straight to the White House, there's a ton of groundwork that needs to have been done before. And to do that groundwork, you need people. And to have people, you got to pay them. And to do that, you need a vehicle. That's where the exploratory committee comes in. And it really is that first, sometimes behind the scenes step that begins the process of running. I didn't realize that that was a legal entity. That's really interesting. So do you have someone now who has the title campaign manager? More or less, yes. Titles are fluid. But I do have somebody who's, who's running this effort. Mike Schmuel is his name. He's uh, been an advisor and, and led a number of, of my efforts. We have finance staff, press staff, political staff. You know, one of the things you learn quickly in any candidacy or in any office is the extent to which the people around you make or break you. And so as I speak, kind of as quickly as we can raise the money to pay them, uh, we're assembling what's still a pretty lean team that is designed to be as capable, as diverse, as talented as possible to help us uh, develop this and, and make it into a viable national effort. Who's the person that you've known the longest? That would probably be Mike who's leading it. Would you compare your dynamic at all to the Josh Lyman, Matt Santos dynamic? Do you butt heads at all like those two? You have to shelve the education plan. You have to swallow the Mayflower quote. You uh, want me to introduce myself to the electorate as a flip-flopper? As opposed to a piece of political toast? Yes, I do. A little smoother than that, but it's certainly the case that, you know, part of the job of a campaign staff that, that you hire is to tell you things whether you want to hear them or not. And uh, often it's their job to let you know what's expected of you. And then your job to decide how much you're willing to conform to that. It's often occurred to me that all the ways in which you conform in any profession, not just politics, but all, all the ways in which you conform to what's expected of you, the sum total of that becomes your professionalism. And then all the ways in which you decide not to conform, the sum total of that becomes your style. <laughs> That's really well put. I know that there's a ton of preparation that must have gone on over the past couple years leading up to this point. Your book, Shortest Way Home, in some ways feels like a great precursor for your bid and all the other steps that might have come up. But I'm sure there are things you just can't prepare for. So in light of that, what's one or two of the things that you've faced so far now that you've been doing the retail politics and traveling and talk shows and all that stuff that maybe caught you completely by surprise? there have any, been any uh, total surprises, especially because I have a team that's done a very good job of kind of anticipating issues and preparing me, whether it's tactically or just psychologically. Yeah. Uh, if anything, something's gone better than we hoped. You know, we're going into Iowa and, uh, you know, some of my team members were, I think, trying to kind of prepare my ego a little bit. And they're saying, look, it's not unusual for these first stops in an early state that you might have more reporters than you have voters. And uh, in the end, that didn't happen, which is great. But if it did, I, I would have been ready. But in the end, we had, we had you know, good crowds better than I could have hoped. Um, but I'm sure there will be days like that. There will be days when you organize a big, when I was a campaign staff member, you know, you organize what you think is going to be a big event and you wind up with like three people wondering where the soda machine is. And, and um, you know, you just have to be ready for anything. Uh, the other thing that I guess is surprising anytime you step into the arena, you're surprised by the people who help you and the people who don't. Sometimes somebody's been a, you know, a longtime friend and you um, get along well with them, but for whatever reasons on their side, they're not prepared to be very involved in, in this particular effort of yours. And then other times, people you barely know, people you didn't even think liked you, come out of the woodwork and just put everything they have on the table in order to help you get to your goal. And so those surprises, most of which are pleasant ones are among those that I think every candidate uh, uh, learns to absorb as, as you get onto a trail. If people want to help or they want to support, what should they do? 
PeteForAmerica.com. That's the quickest place to go. It's pretty basic now. It's just a splash page. But if you can share your email address, that's uh, uh, how we can keep in touch with you. Uh, and we're also, of course, collecting contributions. The DNC said that if you want to get invited to the debate, you got to have at least 65,000 individual contributors. Now, the good news is this isn't about massive checks. This isn't the two thousand dollars that uh, you know uh, the character gives to Josh Lyman. Yeah, not that we'd be upset if somebody felt moved to do that, but five bucks goes toward me being able to show that we have that kind of grassroots support and hopefully earning a, a podium on that debate stage down the line. And of course, to just stay tuned, keep an eye on us on social media. I'm pretty easy to find on Twitter or Facebook, and you'll see as uh, we continue hopefully to gather momentum and organize events and perhaps in an area close to you, and also uh, continue to put forward ideas. I really want this whole thing to be a conversation about uh, where we're headed. And I think we, you know, because this is an underdog project, I actually think we have extra latitude to be original, to be creative, to make it really be about ideas. And so we're not afraid to try some things that are new and want to engage as many people as we can. Given that we've got a, a lean team and, and we're not a huge operation, it's a little bit challenging to do it, but it's really important to me to find that we connect with as many people as we can in as many ways as we can. And what if people want to do more, if they want to volunteer or something like that? Are there states particularly where you really could use some bodies and some support? Yeah, there sure will be. You know, the four uh, earliest states are Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. And, and so those states in particular, for people who live there or people willing to travel there and help us make friends, that's going to be a big deal. Uh, so in addition to the, the grassroots fundraising appeal, uh, we're, we're looking for folks to help out there. Now, again, we're still building up the organization that would give us the capacity to put those volunteers to work. But the sooner we can get a name, either through an email at that site or a Somebody could write us in at info at PeteForAmerica.com and just roger up and say that, uh, that you're ready when the time comes. That'll be a big help to us as we start uh, really building this thing out. Pete, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I wish you all the best. Good. Well, thanks a lot. You did it. You listened to another episode of The West Wing Weekly, and for that, we thank you. Thanks so much to Mayor Pete Buttigieg for joining us. If you want to learn more about his campaign, go to PeteForAmerica.com. You can follow Mayor Pete on Twitter at Pete Buttigieg. You can follow us at West Wing Weekly. You can also check out his book, Shortest Way Home. We'll have a link to that on the website. We thank, as always, Nick Song, Zach McNeese, and Margaret Miller for their contributions to the show. Thanks to Eli for his contributions to this show. Yes, bat phone Addy. Thanks to all the staffers at Pete for America who helped arrange this and let me talk them into putting the mayor on our podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. The West Wing Weekly remains, as ever, a proud member of Radiotopia, a collection of intellectually erotic <laughs> podcasts about which you can find more information and the podcast themselves at radiotopia.fm. You can follow us on all manner of social media, except for Tumblr. It's just a matter of time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. So until next time. Okay. Okay. What's next? Hey, everyone. Before we go, we want to tell you about another show. It's part of Showcase, which is the Radiotopia limited series channel. It's really cool. There's all kinds of original podcasts from emerging and leading producers all around the world. And right now, there's a new one, a four-part series called Space Bridge. Space Bridge tells the largely forgotten saga of the late Cold War when despair about the prospects of a nuclear conflict gripped the entire world. It's a story about Soviets and Americans grasping at emerging technology through satellite and early internet space bridges that brought together citizen diplomats ranging from New Agers to tech enthusiasts to astronauts. 
So it's not about driving from Pluto to Mars. Mm -mm. Not this one. This is actually probably more interesting than that. <laughs> this podcast is about how the world changed from top-down broadcasting to the more level internet society where we now all live, for better or for worse. That sounds good. Should we play a clip? This is Houston. We do have a TV picture. There are no frames. There are no boundaries. Right now on Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. Zero, one. Two, this is Space Bridge. Pavel and I are looking at each other like... I figured, well, that's it. We are We're dead. The story of DIY diplomats who changed our world. I can't even explain what it felt like. Socially, it's possible. Technically possible. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Space Bridge. That's at radiotopia.fm slash showcase. So what? So what? So why, what? why are you insulting us again, again, and again? So make sure to check out Space Bridge on Showcase. Just go to radiotopia.fm slash showcase, and you'll find the show. Radiotopia. From PR.